for linguistics, the, the, the whole point is to account for what people mean with their sentences, right? And how they construe other sentences. And as a result, a lot of linguistic meaning just has to be driven by kind of our general understanding of the world. So, for example, I would not expect languages, um, temporal expressions to follow the full principles of relativity theory. They're going to behave like we expect in a kind of world where we think time is marching forward in some predictable way. So we could be wrong about the underlying ontology, but to use the right ontology might to be give the wrong semantics in the sense that linguists care about. So here, the point here is that it might be very hard to figure out how to reconstruct a semantics for numbers that would account for all of the things that exist in math. Right. But it might be straightforwardly true that languages treat them like other abstract entities that are kind of fully predictable there. And then what the linguists will do is just assert for the purposes of argument that they're entities in the universe and move on. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart. Here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 84. And this episode is with Chris Potts, who's professor and chair of the Department of Linguistics at Stanford University, and also professor by courtesy in the Department of Computer Science, also at Stanford. So Chris has worked on a wide variety of topics in linguistics, of which I'm not by any means an expert, uh, but he's published on conventional implicature, which is also a big topic in the philosophy of language. And you might want to check out his book, Logic of Conventional Implicatures, that was published uh, by Oxford University Press in 2003. And he's also worked on large language models, which are or is very relevant for today's conversation, since we also get into chat GPT and also obviously quite relevant to the zeitgeist at the moment. And he's also lately been collaborating with a philosopher and logician here at Stanford, Thomas Icard, and we get into this a bit as well. Uh, actually, we, we talk a lot about the relationship between uh, philosophy and linguistics. Chris studied philosophy when he was in school. And we then turn into, or we don't turn into, uh, we turn to topics in semantics and pragmatics. So we talk about reference, uh, the principle of compositionality. We talk about a lot of stuff to do with adjectives, which was very fun for me. Uh, we talk about swearing, which he did his dissertation on. And then we also talk about a bit about Chomsky's legacy in linguistics. And this was quite fascinating for me. A while back, I had Noam Chomsky on the podcast, and we <clears throat> talked about the history of linguistics, but we didn't so much talk about his impact on linguistics or how some other linguists might feel about his impact on linguistics. So this was a really neat uh, companion to that episode. And as I mentioned earlier, we also talk about chat GPT, and you can find some of Chris's articles on Medium about this subject, but we talk about ChatGPT's impact on the classroom, 
uh, and his experience with that. And then whether or not large language models are capable of understanding, which is, as you might imagine, also a philosophical topic. So I also have to mention that you should subscribe, like, all of these things are endlessly appreciated. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Chris. Most of my guests on the podcast thus far have been philosophers. And most people, I think, become interested in philosophy because they're curious about some big idea, like maybe consciousness or uh, quite broadly, the difference between right and wrong. Or maybe they're just sucked in because they have to take an intro class. <laughs> that that happens sometimes too. Yet for linguistics, most people aren't required to take linguistics courses. I never was in undergrad. Uh, foreign language classes don't really, as far as I know, have any bearing on linguistics proper. And also, most of us don't really encounter linguistics in pop culture, which made me wonder how it was that you got sucked into linguistics and ended up becoming a linguist. Oh, yeah, that was an undergrad for me. Yeah, as you say, people of my generation did not enter college knowing anything about linguistics. Maybe we'd never even really heard the word before. That's changing. It's really heartening. Uh, high schoolers write to me now to say that they're passionate about linguistics. So oh, wow. Good trend there. But yeah, for, for me, uh, when I got to undergrad, I kind of expected to be a philosopher. And I think it's fair to say that that is my path in. I took a philosophy of language class with Roy Sorensen. I was an undergrad at NYU. And that Amazing. was just a magical experience for me. I knew nothing going in and felt like I had just entered a new world of ideas. Uh, he taught it in a really compelling way. It was full of paradoxes and puzzles and other things. Um, so I thought for a while that I would be a philosopher of language. Um, but I guess it wasn't really suited to my personality. I felt what was lacking in the philosophy that I was experiencing was a feeling of shared enterprise. And right adjacent to philosophy of language was linguistic semantics, which did feel to me like a community that was trying to figure something out. And I just drifted over to them, essentially. And then I knew I was a linguist because at the time at NYU, the linguistics department was very small and had essentially no one doing any work on meaning. And yet, nonetheless, I found my path forward. And uh, the rest is history, I guess. Huh. Well, we, I noticed a lot of philosophy of language in your teaching. So we'll get back to that in a bit. But first, this idea of shared enterprise is uh, quite striking to me. So I had the the great uh, Noam Chomsky on the podcast a month ago. So he's technically the first linguist to be on the show. And, and you're number two. All right. <laughs> but I was hoping to talk a bit about what the field is like quite broadly before we get into more substan substantive material. And I guess this is where the shared enterprise comes in. So I know you work with philosophers. Uh, you've collaborated with Thomas Icard in the philosophy department here. So you probably and, and you studied philosophy. So you know how diverse a philosophy department is. I mean, there are philosophers of 
math and physics and epistemology and ancient. And some might not really want to have anything to do with one another. They might think that they're working on completely different things. But then within philosophy of language, we have people doing work on things like speech acts. And then some of the more hardcore, logic-y, technical stuff like Thomas. But how does a linguistics department break down? Are there different um, shared enterprises going on? Or what are the different areas of research within any given department? Yeah, it's very diverse in linguistics. Uh, I'm sure it varies in the extent to which it's cooperative, but I think philosophy departments do as well. Mm -hmm. or just complementary or something more complicated. Uh, I could start with Stanford. Stanford is unusual as a linguistics department in being very broad indeed. We cover really every area of core linguistics. So we have people who do sociolinguistics, which is kind of the study of language and society and language and personal identity and everything that would go along with that. We have people who do more Chomsky and stuff. Uh, like syntax and phonology. And we also have laboratory phoneticians uh, and people who work on meaning from kind of formal semantics on through to the social interactional part of that. And then we have a large contingent of people who do natural language processing. And I would also say that we're unusual in having lots of influences across those different sub areas. So it's not like it's a bunch of little encampments, rather we have students who are almost all our students are doing things at the boundaries of those areas. And we have lots of faculty collaborations as well. So we cover like the whole map, but that is unusual. Many linguistics departments are kind of narrowly Chomskyan uh, or narrowly focused on sociolinguistics or maybe narrowly focused on NLP. Okay. And before we get into syntax, semantics, and pragmatics, which is where I wanted to go next. I'm curious about how, just as like, a, I guess, a case study, how your work intersects with Thomas's. So Thomas Eichard, who I mentioned earlier, where do the philosophy or logic and the linguistics intersect in this case? Yeah, well, I'm not sure how Thomas would describe it. Maybe he wouldn't even call it philosophy, but rather something else, like really just logic and decision theory and formal representation. Thomas is unusual in that he has done just straight up formal semantics work, especially on modality. So he knows a lot of linguistics and there's not like a very large bridge we need to build to talk to each other about things to do with language. But the recent collaborations with Thomas have really been around large language models and their representations. So trying to determine using a technique that we call causal abstraction, whether or not one of these massive NLP models embeds something like semantics, concepts, word meanings, things like that. Um, that's an interest that Thomas had prior. And it was really our student Atticus Geiger who brought us together. And so we have done a series of papers, really, I would say, trying to figure out whether language models have learned semantics. Uh, and then on the side, as part of this big effort around foundation models at Stanford, Thomas and I collaborated closely on a little piece that is just about the philosophy of understanding uh, as it might inform what language models are doing. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I know one of my friends is taking your natural language understanding course oh, and enjoying it a lot. Great. But for now, we can move to syntax, semantics, and pragmatics. And the first thing I was curious about was the module on interpreting proper names. And I was surprised to see that a lot of your course reads like a philosophy course. For instance, I, like the first section on entailment could have come from a logic class. And then the second on interpreting proper names drew first on Kripke's causal theory of naming, uh, in which a name gets its reference uh, by a sort of baptism. And then on the descriptive theory of naming, which comes from Russell. And then you also mentioned Frege, uh, Fodor, and plenty of others. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Does much, does a lot of the foundations of linguistics come from philosophy and philosophers? Well, so, okay, for semantics and pragmatics, absolutely, yes. The short version of that story is that in the 1950s, on the heels of the development of higher order logics, uh, a bunch of philosophers turned their attention to natural language, in particular, Richard Montague and David Lewis. But there was a whole group of them who were interested in logic uh, as applied to language. And so that's where the term Montague grammar comes from. Montague was a philosopher at UCLA. Um, and then it took some linguists, in particular Barbara Partee, but there were others who helped translate these, those ideas from the sphere of philosophy of language into real concerted study of linguistic phenomena. And that heritage is still with us today. So we still use lambda calculus just the way Montague mm -hmm. did. And a lot of the techniques and assumptions just carry over. You saw that like maybe the default way that linguists think about proper names is a kind of Kripkean version where they directly refer. You could find exceptions just like you can in philosophy, but you know, that's very influential. And then the same thing is true for pragmatics. You know, Grice was a philosopher at most of his career at Berkeley, but you know, he began as an ordinary language philosopher in the UK. And he's had wide influence in philosophy, but I would say it's nothing compared to the influence that he's had for linguistic pragmatics. That's still the centerpiece of how essentially everyone thinks about oh, wow. language and interaction. So that's still when we, we, we read logic and conversation in that intro course. And, you know, the field has moved on in many ways, but in many ways it remains grounded or mired uh, in all these ideas from the mid 20th century. Hmm. And I'll, the final thing I'll say, this might be of interest, you know, a lot of people say that the way science works is that it begins in philosophy and graduates into its own field. And there are many historical examples of that. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that the study of linguistic meaning graduated from philosophy and became its own thing in the field of linguistics. And that happened recently. Yeah, that uh, I, I've said this a few times on the podcast, but there's a, a professor of mine in the philosophy department here, Nadim Hussein, who uh, once he told me that 
everything starts as philosophy. And then once the questions become tractable and there's an agreed methodology for solving them, then they get uh, doled out to the sciences. Yeah, that's perfectly reasonable as a description and uh, of linguistic semantics. And Barbara Partee was a major player in that. David Lewis participated as well. He was good as an ambassador. Montague was not uh-huh. um, particularly a good ambassador, but Partee saw the kind of inspiring ideas there. And there were a bunch of linguists, Jim McCauley, Larry Horn, and others who saw that in Grice as well and became ambassadors for Grice. Something that is already um, striking to me from talking to you and obviously from looking at your material is that even, well, maybe maybe you are a, a philosopher as well. Maybe you think of yourself as a philosopher and a linguist, but a lot of people in the, the academy, though I, I shudder to refer to it as the academy, outside of philosophy tend to look down on philosophers. Mm-hmm. So it's neat that... Uh, you find them so important for linguistics. And maybe maybe in this case, it's like you said, since Grice, for instance, is so important to pragmatics, it, it would be hard to uh, say otherwise. Well, a couple things. The, the One thing I could say is that I feel like philosophers would do well to pay more attention to what's happening on the empirical side in linguistics and update their own worldviews more frequently than they seem yeah. to. That would be the negative part. The positive part is that I would not call myself a philosopher. It's been a long time since I actually did philosophy, except, you know, kind of alongside with Thomas and John Echemendi for that piece I mentioned. And I think that philosophy is a skill, just like any other. And I can tell that many people in the scientific and engineering world do not think that it's a skill and therefore think that they can philosophize and not get themselves immediately in hot water. And they get themselves in hot water. They say things that are philosophically ridiculous that Mm -hmm. seem like truisms to them only because they haven't thought about it. And they didn't really think to think that it was harder than it looked, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is not a mistake they make for their own fields, of course. Uh, It's just a mistaken assumption that philosophy is something you can just do by musing aloud when it is, in fact, a skill that you hone just like you hone a skill at programming and building large scale NLP systems. Yeah, I think of it as a skill for one, sniffing out questions, but also a skill for uh, reasoning about them in particular ways. Uh, and another thing philosophers do that very often just skip, get skipped past in public debate is just explain what the terms of the debate are going to be. And even if they disagree, like just articulating up front, like, for example, salient for me, what do we mean by understanding? What yeah. is the semantics? So so say what you believe those things are so that we can reason about them, not because we think they're the final definitions, but so that we can reason about them instead of presupposing everyone shares your definition and stumbling forward into what then turns out to be a very confusing discussion. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny uh, because as we were, as you were talking earlier I, and you mentioned uh, understanding and large language models, I immediately flagged that, okay, I have to ask what he means by understanding when he gets, when we get to it, before we start talking about, can they understand? Right. Well, so I, I would not presuppose any definition and I don't think that we will have a definition. That would be the mm-hmm. first term of that debate that I would state. Um, cause I think the meaning of the word understanding is going to evolve as we encounter more agents that seem like us to be understanding. And we already use it in so many flexible ways 
you might say that your computer understands a command if it just executes it properly. That's obviously an extension. People mean something a little bit different with language models. But one thing I will say is that I think we could be rigorous about what it would mean to have a semantics, which would be for me a particular kind of mapping from language into concepts. And that's perfectly rigorous. And that's the kind of question I've been asking with Thomas and Atticus and others. Uh, are language models inducing a semantics as part of the training that they do? And I, I do want to get back to the, the proper names, but quite briefly, could you say what it means for a language to map to concepts? Uh, Well, I mean, I get that's just what I mean by a semantic. So you could think of it just very procedurally as words come in, concepts come out. Uh, that is an act of interpretation in some sense that I think we can do. Uh, we can formalize that in various ways. And then the question would be when a NLP, like a language model, processes a sequence of tokens, does it map those into internal representations that play the same causal role as concepts as we recognize them? I guess what I'm asking is more what you mean by a concept. Oh, yeah. So then we can we can further interrogate all of these assumptions. So, yeah, that's a tricky question. That would be a question for philosophy and cognitive science. Um, but I don't think that I need a rigorous definition because we could have some clear cases uh, of concepts like, you know, what does it mean for two objects to be in the relation of above in some space? and things like that. And then we could ask this language model, when you say that the cup is above the table, uh, does it have internal representations that play the causal role of concepts like cups and tables and the, their spatial proximity? Okay, yeah, that, that's very helpful. That, that's, uh, you have to work that way because there's gonna be no once and for all definition of what it means to be a concept because all of these concepts are themselves vague concepts with lots of gray area. And you could decide to adjudicate the gray area, or you could just accept that there's gray area and look at clear cases. And for the current terms of the debate, clear cases are all we need, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard enough already. Uh, and maybe when we make lots of progress, we could worry about the borderline cases. Right. It's. I mean, it would be totally unreasonable to expect the the large language model to be able to deal with vague concepts when even humans can't <laughs> like with the, the heap of sand, like that paradox, we don't even know. We can't um, delimit the concept of a heap right. when it's a non heap. Linguistics might give you some tools to ask whether they also have a vague understanding of those concepts. And for example, we might be able to discover that they don't, and that would be really worrisome. If you discovered that your language model had an exact boundary where it counted 20 grains of sand as a heap and 19 is not, that's something that plausibly we could discover about it, even behaviorally. And then I think we would worry that it didn't have a human-like understanding of that inherently vague concept, because that's just not the human reaction to things mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have an answer for you in the general case for a lot of these things, but for the specifics, you can see a path to kind of in interrogating them. Okay, well, we'll get back to the large language models. But for now, you mentioned that most linguists think of names in a Kripkean sense. I think that's what you said, and in that they directly refer. Yeah. Uh, could you say a bit more about what you what you mean by they directly refer in contrast to something else? 
Like, I guess maybe you have the, the descriptive model in mind. What I meant is like, if you, like, I, I would, I'd be willing to bet money that if you went through a top journal in semantics and you looked at the little, you know, formal grammars that they're writing as part of the formal account they're giving, you would see proper name Chris interpreted as some entity in the little model they've constructed. So directly referring to an entity as opposed to being an abbreviated description or some kind of property of entities or something. I see like what that. you're saying. And so, so, but then, and that's perfectly reasonable. And then like for my course though, I think, okay, that's our starting assumption. The interesting part for me in the context of that intro class is the convention that led to that. And we talk a lot about the social conventions around all language use and all word meanings. And we talk about proper names as an interesting special case where you, in some circumstances, get to coin a new convention. You can just declare that your cat has some name and that is the new conventional association. You can't do it for most words, but you can do it for proper names. And th those can be socially negotiated and people can decide that they want to resist the convention, or change it. You know, you have things like nicknames where there are sometimes circumstances where people can be renamed and sometimes where that's socially awkward or touchy. That's the interesting part, the pragmatic part. But it's still in the case where I name my cat pins, it still directly refers in, in the formal sense that you mentioned. That so So that's right. So for the class, that's what we say. But I also use it as a chance to discuss various views on semantics. We talk about Jackendorf's more cognitive notion where the name would refer to some mental construct different for all of us. And it's only indirectly referring to something in the world. And for Jackendorf, that's pretty incidental compared to the mental representation part. Whereas for some like causal realists in philosophy and linguistics, no, it, it directly refers. They're, they're, they're externalist in their semantics. And that's the only thing that matters is this actual connection to the real world. Yeah, that that's actually precisely what I was going to ask. I was going to ask about your personal opinion on the relationship between a name like Pins and the object, this cat. And so do you posit like a philosopher, you think of it as some sort of abstract relation, or do you conceive of it much more positivistically or uh, physicalistically, if that's a word, like the name is just a sound which upon hearing makes your brain think of the cat i think all those things can be true together okay. this is maybe why i'm not a philosopher most of my work has no connection to this question it's kind of agnostic about it and i do think there's something to every position you just laid out i guess by default if i have to identify myself i'm a kind of conventionalist and that i think that language, these associations in particular between forms and meanings, it's just a fantastically ornate set of social conventions that are on par with norms around politeness and other aspects of our society. You know, these kind of amorphous community level bits of knowledge that govern our behavior. Language is just the most complicated instance of that. Okay. And... <clears throat> There are a few other concepts in this course, and I use the word concept here uh, loosely, not in the, the technical sense we've been trying to pin down, uh, concepts in this course that we've been discussing that I don't know really anything about because I've sadly never taken a linguistics course. But 
for instance, so what is the the principle of compositionality? That's a strong principle that really finds its origins in the work of Richard Montague in our modern conception. And it just says that the meanings of complex phrases are going to be fully determined by the meanings of the parts and how they come together. And this has like been an incredible shaping influence on the nature of semantic theory because the whole name of the game for modern semantics is to take some complicated thing and break it down into essentially the lexical meanings and then your theory about how the lexical meanings combine uh, as an explanation for how we can use language systematically and productively. Hmm. And does this in some way relate to our ability to create and understand a functionally or infinite number of utterances? That's the standard story. Yeah. So, so the, the standard thing that like people like Chomsky are fond of saying is that we have a capacity to understand an infinite number of sentences. And the only way that could be explicable is if we have some capacity to break that down into a finite number of subproblems, and then you need full predictability, right? You need compositionality because otherwise, how would you understand novel combinations of things? I think it's a reasonable argument. I just, you know, every, I have quibbles with every single part. We're all finite beings. We don't have an opportunity to understand an infinitude of sentences. There is some mm -hmm. finite length for all of us, sadly. <laughs> and the other part is that compositionality is a much too strong principle to explain that creativity because you could be creative and productive with language without the kind of lockstep determinism of compositionality. It could be something looser that would still explain predictable creative language use. This matters to me, and I've talked a lot about it and written a lot about it because it has shaped semantic theory so much, this obsession with giving compositional analyses. And I think in some cases that has distorted the truth about how language works. Some aspects of it are not fully determined in that in that way. You say that you said that compositionality is too strong and that there are looser ways of accounting for this infinite variety that we could potentially understand. What do you have in mind? What, what's a weaker but still sufficient way of explaining this principle? There, yeah, so there are kind of two perspectives that are different. The first perspective is just that I think the meanings of words in sentences are influenced by things that are happening in far reaching parts of that sentence. So that if you have a, like a noun phrase, like the cat, yeah. compositionality says, I have to give a meaning to the cat, never mind what else happens in the sentence. Never mind if it's Chris saw the cat uh, or Robinson saw the cat or the cat was hungry. It has to be a fixed meaning for the cat. And I think in point of fact, the meaning of the cat is influenced by everything that's happening around it in the sentence. Um, and we should embrace that, that there is some kind of non-determinism. The right, way so that, that, that that is typically accounted for is by kind of building in some long distance dependencies, because in the background here, there's this formal trick you can pull to turn any account into a compositional account if you want to work hard enough at it. We could talk about whether that's true or not. Let me just say that the other part, the other angle on this question is that 
in being so obsessed with representation and how the pieces fit together, semantic theory has more or less forced itself to leave out everything about usage. So obviously, like for a sentence like, Chris saw a crane pick up a steel beam, the surrounding pieces are di disambiguating the word crane to mean a machine, not a bird. Right. That needs to be left out of semantic theory. You need to just say there are these two representations, one where it's a bird, one where it's a machine, and then have a separate story for why one of them is unreasonable as an assumption about the meaning of the sentence. That's being forced on us by compositionality, whereas you could have a more usage-based theory that said, I want to account for that all at once. I want to know the likely meaning uh, of the sentence in context, but that would imply a lot of influences from the world and also from other parts of the sentence on the meaning of crane as it was used there. And that would not be compositional, not by any reasonable account of what compositionality is. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about ambiguity. I had in mind the classic uh, riverbank and going to the bank, that, that ambiguity. But are there other limits to this principle of compositionality? I have in mind like ad certain adverbial structures. Well, so it's tricky um, because I kind of probably agree with your concern, but there is a formal trick that semanticists know how to pull to give a compositional account, even where that seems like it shouldn't be given. The, the trick is kind of technical, but the insight behind it is that for any word that you think is being influenced by something that is not local to it, you just turn it around and have that word be a function on all of that context. So it controls it. And then once it has control of it, of course, it can determine the surrounding context and therefore determine itself. Hmm. That's the metaphor, you know? So instead of being at the mercy of what's happening around it, where you would get it wrong because you saw an influence coming from the outside. Now you just say, oh, this little word gets to swallow up its full context and then decide what it means. But the, the point is that compositionality alone is not a formal constraint on what you could express, but it has been a constraining factor in what semanticists feel like they can propose. Uh, and they, there's a strong pressure to propose only compositional accounts, even when they seem far-fetched, if you think about truth. So <laughs> it's, it's limiting theory. to the research program. Yeah, I feel, I feel it has had a distorting effect. That's a nuanced argument to make. But one thing I'll say that's absolutely clear is that it has compelled semanticists to leave out a lot of things that are probably not compositional. So like noun compounding for a long time, you know, like children's museum or pumpkin truck. They were just not studied because they're not compositional. You have some compounds that are just ambiguous, like White House is a compound that refers to the place where the U.S. president lives. A white house is just a house that's painted white. They can be modifiers, but they're also mm -hmm. the, the compound readings of those just exist in this space between lexical items you have to memorize and things that are predictable from their parts and are actually complex phrases. They're just in the middle ground. Another middle ground is idioms. So mo by and large, the meaning of idioms, it's not predictable from their parts. But they have some aspects that look awfully like the parts are meaningful. <laughs> um, leave no stone unturned is an idiom that means be thorough in investigation. 
leave no legal stone unturned is the same idiom, but now legal is modifying that phrase in a predictable way. So it's kind of between compositional and not. And my point is that because semanticists want to do compositional semantics, they ignore all this stuff. And so therefore compounds weren't studied, idioms weren't studied for a very long time. And that was a bias that was distorting the kinds of things people study. And that's unfortunate. And this is a a very broad question that's not directly related to this principle of compositionality. But is everything we've been discussing only relevant to English or is it ideally is like is ideally the principle of compositionality something that should be applying to all languages? The linguist conception is that it applies to all languages. Yeah. Okay. And I think everything we've said, you know, every language has a way to refer with proper names and every language has its own very ornate uh, conventions and politeness norms around when and where you do that. I mentioned at the start of our podcast, we're in California, first name basis for sure. That's not universally true. And that's certainly part of our knowledge of how proper names get used. That varies across the globe. Compositionality the same way, because you know all natural languages have a capacity to be to allow people to be creative with them. So there has to be some explanation for that, for how a finite number of resources gets recruited into this incredibly flexible tool. And compositionality is the hypothesis about how that happens. I'm kind of conveying to you that I think it's too strong a hypothesis in some sense, but that's not an English specific claim. And then this is another question that takes us a bit far afield. But is one account for why all of human natural languages are related in this way? The broadly, I guess, Chomskyan idea that languages innate in some sense. And I suppose that an alternative would be that it's just been quite pragmatic and useful for languages to evolve in this way. And it doesn't really have to do with their innateness. Oh, I think there's lots of interesting science that could happen there. You know, Shane Steinert-Threlkeld is a distinguished alum of your department. He worked with Thomas and with me. He's a professor at University of Washington. And his thesis from Stanford is on why compositionality might arise in situations in which you have a relatively small vocabulary and a complex world that you need to talk about. And the pitch there is that compositionality, some version of it, is a good solution to that problem. And that's very intriguing and inspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But was I on the right path with uh, this Chomskyan idea being an explanation of the phenomenon? Of which phenomenon? Well, that all human languages have this property, that it has something to do with the innateness of human language Uh, or does does that question not really make sense as i'm putting it yeah i'm just trying to decouple a few things like clearly humans have an innate capacity for language Mm -hmm. that is unique in some sense maybe in the universe so you have to grant that because you could try all you wanted and you're not going to teach your cat or any non-human animal really anything about any natural language, whereas humans really good at this, very flexible about it. Yeah. So that that capacity is clearly there. And uh, you're asking, 
whether it arose as a response to something in our environment. I, I'm wondering whether this principle of compositionality that because I'm guessing not all languages have to be compositional, but all human languages apparently are compositional. So is it possible that this compositionality feature is somehow hardwired into us that our languages must be compositional? Oh, interesting. Yeah. With the caveat that compositionality might be too strong for any natural language. But so like really, like one way we could be talk in a more relaxed way from my perspective would be to just talk about systematicity in the sense of like Jerry Fodor. So just the observation that meanings and their parts have a predictability to them. We don't have to say that it's because the meaning of the whole is a function of the meaning of the parts and how they were combined, but obviously there's a lot of systematicity. Um, and so you're asking whether that is true of all human languages? I'm sure it is. I think that's what I'm asking, but I'm what I what I'm asking, and maybe we can move on because maybe I'm there's just something that I'm missing, but I'm wondering if this principle then of systematicity is something that is endowed in us. We couldn't learn. So something that Chomsky brought up when we were talking is this idea of impossible languages versus possible languages. And that there are languages that humans just can't learn, but that a large language model can easily run on. And it has something to do with the way our brains are wired to process uh, data. And I'm wondering if our brains are just process are, are wired up so that we can only use languages that have this principle of systematicity. So all natural languages are going to have it. Okay. Yeah. I think, no, I think you're not, I mean, these are hard concepts. Let's plumb them a little bit. So I think all natural languages are compositional or sorry, systematic in that sense. Um, I'm not sure about the claim about language models uh, and whether or not they would be counterexamples to this or whatever. For humans, there are clearly some languages that have properties that are natural for us and some that are unnatural. And that does seem like something that needs to be characterized. Like, you know, why we have a real capacity to learn the attested languages and for some unattested ones that are nonetheless systematic and everything, we have a hard time learning them. Those are interesting questions for sure. Okay. Okay, great. Well, the, the next, moving moving beyond uh, compositionality for the moment, I was also curious about adjectives. It seems like there are a number of different linguistically salient types of adjectives. And I just think, I guess there are, I think of like count words, uh, color terms, but there are all sorts of different adjectives. What are some of them? <laughs> some types of adjectives. I mean, that would be a project in semantics, right? And there, and one project of modern semantics is to think about the dimensions that would matter uh, for characterizing adjectives. So like, for, for example, one that's really important to the way people think about adjectives now is gradability. So whether the adjective um, kind of could be measured along a scale where prototypically you would say, of course, tall is an adjective that can be measured along a scale. Um, whereas nuclear is maybe by default 
one that is binary, something is right. either nuclear or it isn't. And when you say things like that piece of material is very nuclear, you're coercing it into a great ability that it doesn't have by default. Whereas if you say very tall, that's the normal usage. And then once you have that framework, you start to notice that, for example, tall is different from closed, as in the door is closed in its scalar properties. And that's plausibly because tall has no bounds uh, at either end, whereas closed has bounds at the lower and upper ends. And that's why it's easy to say things like the door is two thirds closed, but not Chris is two thirds tall. Hmm. So gradability is this subtle set of characteristics and actually it goes beyond adjectives. You know, many verbal structures have the same kind of character that you can measure progress. Like Chris mowed the lawn is the kind of activity that you can usually measure because it's got endpoints, whereas Chris ran doesn't really have that property. And then, of course, there are other properties of adjectives, spatial and color, vague, multidimensional, you know, so you might think that wide is pretty unidimensional in its great ability, but beautiful, intelligent adjectives like that are inherently multidimensional. And that leads to a lot of uncertainty about what they communicate. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, the, the scalar adjectives that you mentioned also clearly, maybe they overlap with the vague adjectives because adjectives like tall uh, are the ones that lend themselves to vagueness and certainly context dependence. Exactly right. So the, the linguist reconstruction of that is that for tall, it's vague and it's vague because you need to take a measurement on the scale of heights and the standard that you use for saying someone is at or above the threshold is unknown. Like we, it's set by context and it's differently said if we're talking about basketball players or cats or linguists or three-year-olds. And it's differently set even in specific contexts where we're fixed for talking about basketball players. And none of us knows what context we're in and none of us knows precisely how each of us is going to set the threshold. And therefore saying Chris is tall is a vague claim. And that has the communicative consequence that I can't use it very precisely in most contexts because I can't expect you to know exactly what threshold I have in mind. I myself might, might not even know what threshold I have in mind. Yeah. yeah. One other question about adjectives that just comes to mind right now, and I don't think that this has this relates to compositionality, but it certainly relates to the order because the question is about the order but i've always wondered why um, the five big blue houses for instance makes sense and sounds right to our ear but the blue five big the blue big five houses or uh the big bl bl five blue houses they just don't it just doesn't sound right is there an answer as to why that is or why we have this these ordering conventions that we do? Yes, there is outstanding work on exactly that topic led by Stanford linguist Michael Hahn, who just graduated. Oh, awesome. Andrewski, Judith Deegan, they have all worked on this. I would be hard-pressed to summarize in an accurate way, but I'll say two things. There's a lot of universality to this with some interesting cross-linguistic variation as well. And to a first approximation, I think you can say that it's going to go from most to least subjective. 
in terms of how you stack left to right as you get closer to the noun, with the ones that are closest to the noun being the ones that are going to be most objectively characterizing of the thing that you're referring to. Interesting, because I would have thought that five, like the count noun, would be the most objective thing. But when I hear it in my head, the five big blue houses, five comes first. Yeah, so there might also be some organizing principle around vagueness, but maybe numerical terms are different because they're kind of quasi-determiner elements as well. That's the that's the adjective where you could just say five houses, uh-huh. the freestanding noun phrase. Yeah, I'd have to check the work, but I, I think the, the fundamental thing I want to say is, yeah, like this is a great question for linguists, especially in a department like Stanford where you might mix together some structural stuff about how noun phrases are organized with some information theoretic stuff about how things tend to get used and what the costs are for speakers and hearers as they process these phrases. And then, of course, you can do the thing that linguists do so well, which is go typological. Don't just look at English. Think about variation in this respect. And there are lots of great resources for this now, and so you can really get a sense for this across the world. And then returning to uh, this somewhat confused question I asked about innateness of language when i think you said that there was well maybe you can remind me what the phrase was you said cross linguistics cross linguistic uh relevance or similarity uh what was the term that you used to say that they they looked at other languages and found similar uh orderings or principles yeah well just that that the that the principles have a lot of stability across different languages. Right. I was just wondering, what was it cross-linguistic stability? Is that the phrase? That might have been the phrase that I used. I don't know. Okay, okay. But, I was, but what the I... point would be that the, these observations you're making about English, you can ask them about any language. And to the point that I think Chomsky might have been making with you, there's a lot of stability that would be surprising if human languages were all just kind of independent of each other and just kind of learned ad hoc by people. The, right. the underlying factors that are guiding this, uh, you could have different theories about that. Chomsky might think that it's just an innate property of the human mind, whereas someone else yeah. might say this is actually a very natural inform- like response to in an information theoretic sense to the cost of being a speaker and a hearer and kind of hoping that you build up more information about the referent as you process in a temporal environment. And that would be much more functional and might be much less dependent on you saying that there's like some innate human language module in the brain. People yeah. can differ on these points. Yeah. yeah, that was that's precisely what I was wondering is how how a linguist when confronted with this cross linguistic stability of a phenomenon attempts to explain it. Does their work then uh, connect with the evolutionary biologists, the evolutionary psychologists, or are they looking? Um, are they looking at the information processing on much more broadly, seeing what's most economical? The ways in which uh, the linguist goes about answering these uh, these observations. Yeah. So I think linguists should be looking at all of those factors. You know, language impacts essentially every aspect of our cognitive and social lives. And so it would be foolhardy to think that you could somehow isolate it from everything else. Um, and so I think it's a process of just figuring out, like, for example, the, the stock of color terms that we have in English is definitely partly guided by aspects of the color system. 
And it's definitely also guided by aspects of how English is used and its its history and its evolution in that sense. It's also guided by the fact that we, we live in an industrial society where many things are artificially colored and the way we differentiate them is by their color. And if we lived in an environment with many fewer manufactured things, color might not be a salient dimension and therefore we might have fewer color terms. That's mm -hmm. not going to say something deep about the language or the people who use it. It says something probably about the environment in which they live. And yeah. to leave out that aspect of your account of language, again, as I say, just seems foolhardy. And it's also, I, I maybe I missed it if you mentioned it, but it's quite constrained by the human visual system. Absolutely. That's got to be a factor. Yeah, so it would also be foolhardy to say that you can explain this entirely by the structure of noun phrases or entirely by the fact that we have a lot of manufactured goods. That's also obviously incorrect. And so, you, you know, that's what makes linguistics exciting to me is that essentially every account you give needs to draw on all of these aspects of cognitive science and social life. And mm -hmm. the only thing I resist is a, this urge that some linguists seem to feel to give very narrow accounts. And Chomsky is the chief promulgator of the narrowest sort of accounts. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, his his feeling is that you could explain language entirely as essentially syntax and that the only thing that is of interest to you as a linguist is the kind of internal abstract mental competence that you have. And so at best, I think he would say that the influence of like industrialized society or the human color system on the shape of color terms is boring and irrelevant. And now, it's not the project of linguistics. And, and I am telling you that that is just wrong. Mm -hmm. So uh, two observations. One, I'm noticing uh, a major similarity between your view of linguistics and my view of philosophy in that it seems like you think they're both subject. Well, you think about this about linguistics. I think about it as philosophy is that they're at their best when they are in dialogue with other disciplines. So you mentioned earlier, philosophers of language need to be in much closer dialogue with linguists doing empirical work. And it sounds like from your your perspective as a linguist, the linguist needs to be in dialogue with the psychologist, the cognitive scientist, the evolutionary biologist. We're probably alike in that deeper abstract sense that I would guess that neither of us really believes that the world is kind of divided up neatly <laughs> into categories yeah. and, that, and that redounds into everything, including scientific disciplines. And so the idea that you could be obsessively just a philosopher of mind or a philosopher of physics without thinking about every other aspect of philosophy is just going to steer you wrong. That is absolutely my position about linguistics. There is no clear dividing line between any of the concepts that I've mentioned. And that means that if you want to give satisfying accounts, you probably need to draw on all of them all at once. Yeah. And then the second thing I wanted to ask is just uh, a point of clarification. I understand that Chomsky is thought of as uh, one of the founders of cognitive science and, and not just contemporary linguistics. And I, just knowing that, it doesn't seem to uh, jive or vibe, to use today's vernacular, with the 
description you just gave of him giving of him preferring this very narrow approach to language he seems very interested in uh the human mind and its capabilities and not just uh syntax and grammar and this sort of thing as always with chomsky it is all of that all at once and it embrace you have to embrace all of those contradictions you have to say that Chomsky is absolutely one of the most important figures ever in cognitive science and certainly a founding element of it. And also maybe done more than anyone to hold it back. You, you have to accept that he is the source of most modern thinking about language, especially the things that we now regard as central, like how do people acquire language and the mundane things being the most illuminating things as a guiding, guiding principle. So he, nobody has done more for linguistics, but also nobody has done more to hold linguistics back by being incredibly narrow about what you count as linguistics and basically arguing that it should be insulated from psychology and computer science and cognitive science. You have to be willing to say these things all at once. He, Chomsky is the driving force behind the explosion of linguistics departments that happened in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., and also, I think, a primary reason why that has plateaued. You have mm -hmm. to say all these things all at once with Chomsky. This is so fascinating um, to hear as an outsider, somebody who doesn't really know much about the world of linguistics. Very you, cool. you have to say, like, so here's a wonderful example that I think really speaks to the brilliance of Grice. So Grice was inspired by Chomsky in the sense that Chomsky was giving these kind of compact, abstract descriptions of syntax. And Grice said, I want to do the same thing for social interaction involving language, for communication. But Grice did that at a time when Chomsky was going around saying that the study of semantics was hopeless and pragmatics would be just beyond the pale in terms of actually being a scientific discipline. Grice had to see through all of that bluster and find inspiration in Chomsky. So even as Chomsky was being as negative as you can be about the field, he inspired Grice in this way and the rest is history. Hmm. So we have Chomsky to thank for pragmatics, but boy, you could find lots of quotes where he essentially says no one should study pragmatics. I think it's the same for semantics. Formal semantics is very Chomskyan in its kind of outlook, even though throughout the 60s and 70s, Chomsky was saying semantics is not part of linguistics. Moving on a little bit, this was something that I, I didn't really understand, but a linguist commented on one of my episodes with a, a philosopher named Graham Priest. Do you happen to know yeah, that name? Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. yeah. So in that episode, we were talking about quantifiers and existential commitment. And Graham doesn't believe that the existential quantifier in first order logic, that despite its name, that it actually commits you to the existence of objects in your ontology. So uh, a sentence like uh, so a sentence that refers to Sherlock Holmes uh, doesn't commit you to the existence of Sherlock Holmes. But this commenter, he, he said that philosophers and linguists treat quantifiers and quantifier terms quite differently. Do you have any idea what he might have had in mind? It, well, this is going to depend really a lot on who we're talking about, because the, quant the quantifiers that as linguists reconstruct them are generalized quantifiers. So, so they are 
like sets of pairs of sets or functions from sets into functions from sets to truth value. So they are very abstract formal objects. Um, but many philosophers think of them that way as well. It does follow from that, that since some, you know, like, like uh, some linguist is this very high order, complex, abstract thing that it doesn't refer to any linguist and saying some linguist does not commit you to the existence of linguists. It just gives you this function that you can have operate like on verb phrases. But I think that the example of Sherlock Holmes is a twist for this because I assume that what's at issue there is like reference to fictional objects and stuff, right? Here's another, I mean, I don't know what Graham means. I'm again, totally open-minded, but here's another dimension that you could insert here that might show philosophers and linguists dividing. So for linguistics, the, the, the whole point is to account for what people mean with their sentences, right? And how they construe other sentences. And as a result, a lot of linguistic meaning just has to be driven by kind of our general understanding of the world. So for example, I would not expect languages, um, temporal expressions to follow the full principles of relativity theory. They're going to behave like we expect in a kind of world where we think time is marching forward in some predictable way. So we could be wrong about the underlying ontology, but to use the right ontology might to be give the wrong semantics in the sense that linguists care about. So here, the point here is that it might be very hard to figure out how to reconstruct a semantics for numbers that would account for all of the things that exist in math. Right. But it might be straightforwardly true that languages treat them like other abstract entities that are kind of fully predictable there. And then what the linguist will do is just assert for the purposes of argument that they're entities in the universe and move on. Right. That makes that makes complete sense. It's much more of a pragmatic approach than the philosopher's approach. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like folk, but I know that that's a loaded term in philosophy that I kind of don't like. But that 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 is the gist of this is that like the, the common construal is what's going to shape people's language use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that actually is partly why sometimes scientists struggle to use natural language to explain their concepts because of this feeling that it's just kind of not doing the job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one last thing about your course that I was curious about is you teach a bit about swearing. So what's what's interesting about swearing for a linguist? Oh, well, so I did my dissertation partly on swearing. Oh, and cool. actually, it's part of what got me into NLP. My quick story of this is that for my dissertation, I was interested in how swears project like if you put a swear inside a sentence like robinson said that the damn linguists were unhappy uh who swore me or you uh that kind of thing uh, uh -huh. it, it was a speech report in some indirect sense but i used a swear and i think the common intuition is that i swore definitely i'm the one who violated the taboo in that case this uh definitely comes to mind and is quite relevant uh, when I think about people, professors or teachers, high school teachers getting in trouble for reading like Huckleberry Finn out loud. Exactly right. Yeah. And so, so I studied that projection behavior and then I became interested in the social aspect of it. And I, I, you know, kind of where I came down is that there is a taboo and whoever utters the phrase is the one who violated the taboo. That, mm -hmm. And that's common for taboos. And, but that what that did is like send me off into thinking beyond just the formal semantics 
into why people swear. And I gathered a lot of corpus data on swears and tried to understand their fine-grained usage patterns and where they're positive and where they're negative and all of this stuff. And that became more and more a project of doing NLP on large data. That's how I became an NLPer. But the reason I bring them up in the course is as a wonderful case of formal semantics just becoming a full societal problem. So, you know, we can give a formal account, but we also need to explain all this cultural stuff. The other place that I do that with is speech acts. We can talk about the formal pragmatics of speech acts, but we should also talk about all the laws and rules and regulations in our society that govern speech acts and all the problems that come from us being indirect with speech acts and nonetheless having laws that say, was this or was this not performed? Uh, and it being indeterminate. And so you just plunge yourself into these very pressing social problems, starting from semantics and pragmatics. And that course is entirely about convincing those students that this matters no matter what they're studying. Hmm. Well, I had in mind, uh, I, I guess I misjudged the time. I wanted to talk a lot about the large language models, but maybe for our last uh, 15 or 20 minutes ago, we could talk about some of their application and some of the things that you've written about them. Sure. How... I just say it's been refreshing to talk about linguistics because I feel like my intellectual world has been totally taken over by language models and I'm finding a lot of the discourse kind of tedious. And so mm -hmm. it was nice actually to talk a little bit about philosophy and a little bit about language. I'm happy to end by talking about large language models, but what a breath of fresh air to not obsess about them. Oh, we could talk more about linguistics if you prefer <laughs> to keep doing no, that. No, no, it, it's good. It's good. It, it is part of the zeitgeist. We should <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for thanks for humoring me. So, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is how you've dealt with the use of Chat GPT in your courses. Because I saw that you wrote an article on university wide policies concerning AI writing assistance. That was wonderfully refreshing, and by a kind of happy accident, a bunch of my students were taking a course on like policy around technology. And they were asked to write a memo to the provost uh, articulating a policy around these tools. And so we had lots of interaction about my policy and the work they were doing for their course and how it related to the work for my course. And it felt really vibrant to me as people were trying to figure this out. So that was one nice side effect. The other side effect was that I made ChatGPT a kind of character in the classroom. I would create prompts from my assignment questions and paste them in and we would all study the results. And I reckoned that, you know, it was like a C minus student in my course. Mm. And some of the mistakes that it made are the sort of mistakes that would reveal to me that the student had no idea what was going on in our classroom. And so I warned students not to use the output uncritically. Uh, and then I did have this policy around when and where they could do it and how they needed to attribute the model itself. Hmm. But, but fundamentally, so, it was just doing so poorly that it was kind of moot. And it was instructive for me to, like, we would look at the output and I would say, there's a lot of mistakes in this output. And if you yourself can spot the mistakes and correct them, you know what I care about. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't worried about it. I think that in the future, I'm going to have to worry much more, but I narrowly escaped this this quarter without really having problems that I know about. That that no that that's quite funny that you would almost want your students. I, I I'm putting words into your mouth. You'd almost want your students to use it just because if they could correct it, then yeah. they've clearly learned something from you. And I actually embrace that. I think that in going forward, we're going to value that skill a lot. That editing will become a more important skill than producing raw prose, 
it's mm -hmm. not an easier skill. You need to know a lot of stuff to be an effective editor. And so, you know, just move into that mental mode. You, you know, you don't need to really do a lot of logarithm calculations by hand to do math these days. I guess that's a loss compared to hundreds of years ago, but it actually seems like a gain. I think the mm -hmm. same thing will happen with these language models. The other thing that I mentioned as part of my policy is just this really nice equalizing effect that students whose native language is not English can use ChatGPT to just help them out with their prose. If I were having to do all of this work that we're doing in a foreign language, I would benefit enormously from a tool that would save me from all the hard work of figuring out whether I had the gender correct on the noun and all of that stuff. I would push back against that though and say that it might be beneficial to have to struggle through learning the English and become a good writer. People but, will do that. It's not about that. Just imagine, right. just think honestly for yourself about whether or not you've gotten as far as you have in part because you get to conduct your entire professional life in your native language. Oh, definitely. No, you're yeah, definitely right about that. Yeah. 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 I told the students that that's why whatever your feelings about this and I, I you know, I, mastery of any foreign language is incredibly useful and very difficult. Whatever your feelings about this, though, I personally have benefited so much from this English bias that I experience everywhere that I can't in good conscience forbid people to use tools that would actually amplify that advantage. That's just wrong. So, no, I think your your point is incredibly strong. I just wanted to, to push back a little bit against it, but I'm glad I did because that was a, a very good explanation. But I don't think that you've said just what your policy is and how you feel about university wide policies. Oh, well, the policy was just that they can use the models, but they need to quote just like you would quote any other source. And that I just mentioned in the policy that if your entire assignment is quoted from any source, it's going to do poorly, whether it was ChatGPT or Wikipedia or some canonical source, right? Just not the way scholarship works. I also warned them that if they both got the same output from a model and submitted it and two students' outputs looked the same, I would get them for plagiarism whether or not, I mean, it wouldn't matter that it came from the model, the assignments would be too similar. And I hope that gave them pause in terms of uncritically using the output, but it opens the door to doing something like writing your first draft, passing it through ChatGPT to have it corrected into formal academic English, because that's surely not going to run afoul of these policies. And I think it would not run afoul of the need to quote, because all it's doing is some stylistic adjustment, which is pervasive in our lives. The other thing that I said is that I just totally resist centralized um, policies on this. Courses are going to differ. Instructor goals are going to differ. Student goals are going to differ. And the idea that there would be one policy that said something about this technology would just do damage. Uh, I also think it would be impossible to enforce because who knows what precisely would count as the model that we don't want students to use. Would autocomplete count? Would spelling correction count? Right. Um, and also, once you have a regulation, certain kinds of minds really want to find the boundary and toy with the boundary. And I was worried that it would create some incentives for students to actually do things that are counterproductive just to show that they could get away with it. I feel like I have that kind of mind. As soon as you show me a law, all I can think about is how I could abide by the letter of the law, but not its spirit and what those things would be like. And it's just unproductive. It's just not the way we want our, our intellectual lives to be constructed, I think. Something interesting about this uh, rule that they have to to quote ChatGPT just like they would any other uh, source is that 
they have to be much more critical to use your word or much much more vigilant about or diligent about what it is that they are quoting because you can probably trust uh, a cited well a well-researched human source and if they are wrong your professor might have some lenience but if you miss if you quote something from jet gpt and it's wrong you can't uh, rely upon that and say look give me give me an a chat gpt told me this so they have to be <laughs> much right. more critical of what chat gpt is not. actually doing <laughs> That's right. The one, the one striking case. So, so in the course we study this very abstract property of quantificational determiners called conservativity. The point is that it's obscure. And if you search this, if you did this question as a prompt into ChatGPT, it gave you a fluent answer that was about some other notion of conservativity, which kind of borderline made sense. Maybe it's a real notion I never really verified. But that would be the case where if you submitted that as a student, it would just reveal to the instructor that you had not attended class. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just a different notion. <laughs> mm. That's funny. So one other aspect of the natural language models that I want to touch on is the understanding. And we already talked about how you conceive of understanding, which is is just sort of loose. But in 2020, you wrote on Medium about whether or not it's possible for language models to achieve language understanding. And what I'm wondering about today is how you felt then and how or if things have changed at all. Because as somebody who's a non-linguistics person, it seemed like overnight everything has just totally changed. But maybe for an insider, you saw this coming, or this isn't really that different from what was being done in the lab three years ago. Hmm. What, what year did GPT-3 come out? This has all become such a weird haze for me. The, you know, the release of GPT-3 was the real phase change moment for a lot of NLP research where everyone started doing research essentially by prompting those models. And then GPT-4 looks like a kind of incremental advance off of that. That's a mismatch with the societal reaction because I feel like GPT-4 was the moment when everyone became obsessed and you started to see constant newspaper articles about it and everyone commenting. So that-, that Yeah, that I don't think I heard about it until this year. Okay, yeah. So, th- so that it's been the centerpiece and a defining aspect of the field for- you know, since around 2020, when the GPT-3 paper came out, and they really showed that you could do a lot of hard NLP things just by prompting a language model and seeing what response it gave. For the, yeah, so does that that answer the first part of your question? Well, I don't even remember what the parts of the question were, but I've, well, I'm the wondering... about understanding again. Yeah, well, I'm wondering if your idea, if your idea has changed since 2020 and it sounds no. like no 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 and if anything i've become more of a booster uh on the idea that these models might certainly induce a very rich semantics and then i do feel like it's on the burden of critics to explain what else there is to understanding because what i mean by this like semantics this mapping from forms to concepts if it's reliable it implies an entire conceptual framework Otherwise, the semantics will be wrong, and it's very systematic. And so if that's not understanding, what else is there? Very often at that point in the argument, 
people just declare that they are kind of biologically centered. They feel that it would have to be a human brain or embodied in a particular way. And that's fine with me, but it just shows you that you it kind of coaxed out that implicit assumption. Right. That's That's one of the things that I was thinking that understanding for me is a very anthropocentric yeah, term. Sure, sure. And to understand something for me seems like the very word would imply consciousness, at least to understand something. I don't know if, 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 if I mean, consciousness itself, I'm not a philosopher of mind is such a murky subject, but there needs to be a subject to understand something to to feel the understanding to ponder uh these are again maybe anthropocentric words but for you understanding doesn't require uh a subject really in this sense maybe but for for your use of the word understanding you might monitor yourself a little bit because i guess it would follow from what you're saying that you do not use that word like when you describe the behavior of a digital computer, like you just say, like this program understands this set of inputs and not these other ones. I would not use the word so, understand. Yeah. So many people do. I don't think that in using it that way, they're committing themselves one way or the other philosophically. It just shows that this word for many people is pretty flexible about this point. You mm -hmm. might be referring to the underlying, like what we mean by understanding. The, the, the question under discussion for us is not how the word is used, but like this, this deeper notion that we're having trouble articulating. And you, you're saying that you believe only biological entities can have it. Can your cat have it? That's a good question. I was thinking about my cat as you were talking. And I think that my cat can understand i i would i well i'm just thinking about how i would use the word and if i say the name pins uh she's in my lap she doesn't care but otherwise she might look at me and i would want to say that she understands that i'm saying her name but if i were to be more critical and think about what i really mean i would probably want to say uh, well when i say pins she's not understanding anything it's just triggering the uh, look at look at him <laughs> yeah i was gonna say uh, like all you have is this behavior she's probably less reliable than siri when it comes to understanding basic language commands but like you i'm more inclined to say that she understands than siri in the sense yeah. that we mean <laughs> but no yeah. now that you say siri i i might be tempted to say that uh when we're not when we're in an informal setting that she understands my my words because i think that siri is sort of trained to hear my voice so if you said hey siri oh and like right now she's <laughs> and i use she uh but like the little orb is glowing on my phone because i said it uh yeah but it, it's interesting how how much this depends on our use of language in different contexts whether or not we want to admit that something can understand we really have to pin it down very much to reach any sort of consensus here, let me offer this. Let me flip the script a little bit and just warn you that your view you have, history might not treat you kindly. So in the famous Turing test paper from Alan Turing, it's called the imitation game no, on com computing intelligence. In I... any case, the one that proposed the Turing paper, the Turing test, uh, one of the objections that he considers, a priori objections, is that thinking is something that only humans can do as a kind of God-given right. And he literally says in the paper that animals and other beasts are 
not allowed to be thinking agents. And then he reflects, you know, like, so that's something that Turing is rejecting, but you can tell that he was at a, his, a historical moment where there was still not consensus about whether animals were thinking beings and felt things like emotions, right? There was a kind of mechanistic belief about cats and cows and so forth. We as a society have totally moved on from that, I would say, right? We all believe, I think, that animals have feelings, right? And think thoughts. What's going to happen in, uh, let's just say, 70 years from now, when your children's children have grown up with pets in the house that are actually artificial intelligence agents? Mm -hmm. Are you going to be the old codger who kind of says, oh, they're not real, they don't think, they don't feel? And then everyone around you is like, oh, Robinson is just like that because he's old. I know he sounds bigoted. Don't worry. You know, we all accept that these agents are among us and have thoughts and feelings. That is a very likely trajectory for history. <laughs> we have gone from human centrism to kind of biological centrism. The next step is just going to graduate from that. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, I think that's a really great note <laughs> on which to end. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me and entertaining my uh, very linguistically naive questions. I think my linguistically naive audience is going to get a lot out of this. Oh, as I said, it was refreshing to just talk about straight up linguistics for a while. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so. Thank you.